Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh, clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're doing a little turkey talk today with Mr. Shane Simpson of Calling All Turkey. Shane, how are you doing? I'm doing good, fellas. How are you, you guys doing? 
doing pretty good. It feels like turkey season outside right now in Alabama. I mean, it is like it's, yeah. it's a little breezy. It's about 80 degrees, sunny bluebird day. I'm kind of mad I didn't wake up early and go see if I could hear some gobbles. But, Jacob, how are you doing over there? Doing good. I've been covered in pollen. That's the thing about being in the deep south right now. All these pine trees are pollinating, and everything's now yellow, and it's literally almost February. It's actually still is February. Technically, when we're recording this, February 28th. Oh, yeah, February 28th. And yeah, there's, the pollen ain't that bad right now. It's going to get a lot worse than this. I know, a but lot it's, worse. It's, just, it's just strange. It's February and there's pollen everywhere. So yeah, the well, only thing we got falling from the tree up here is the ice melting this morning. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather have this ice. than that. <laughs> <laughs> Man, uh, Shane, today we kind of wanted to get you on. We we'd been talking about uh, how to do like kind of a, a unique podcast with you, and one thing you came up with is kind of you know turkey hunting sayings or, or turkey hunting perhaps myths as we might get into, um, just kind of like a list of things to go down. Um, well, can you talk a little bit about kind of like your thought process behind this? I mean, we have like a list of stuff we're about to kind of run through here, but uh, this ought to be a pretty fun episode. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of it's my opinion my and based on my experience. And, and you know how when you're scrolling through social media, Facebook, people are asking questions. And then you're getting some of the feedback from the people that are commenting. And some of that stuff you see is just, it's like sayings that are passed on to the next person, next person. They're just regurgitating what they heard. And a lot of it I don't think is accurate. And so um, it's kind of, my, uh, kind of you know, a way of my little soapbox for those <laughs> topics, <laughs> I guess, if you will. Yeah. One that I'll... I'm really interested in kind of getting your take on, and this is something we've discussed a bunch on the podcast, and I know, you know, you got your thoughts on this, is the whole idea of, you know, you know, calling, being like a really good caller versus being a really good woodsman. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that kind of goes hand in hand, but, you know, some people may just be stronger woodsmen than just callers. Uh, we've interviewed a bunch of different individuals who I figure, or I really kind of, classify as being right in the middle they're they're really good woodsmen they're really good callers um but as like a newer turkey hunter when it comes like a skill set i think so many guys put so much emphasis on the calling aspect that maybe they kind of lose sight on the woodsmanship and the setups and everything that becomes a good turkey hunter what is your take on that what is your take on again focusing whole effort on just being a really good caller versus actually going out there spending time in the woods and figuring out how to become a better woodsman and maybe kind of molding both of those together, you know, as a turkey hunter. Yeah, the, each has its place. And I will say this, a lot of people try to separate the two, and I've been guilty of that myself. But good calling is a part of being a good woodsman. I mean, knowing when to say certain things to a turkey, knowing how to say it, how, how to present it, and being a good caller is is another key to being a good woodsman. Just like, you know, someone you can have somebody that, that can move through the woods, but then you can have someone that can move through the woods much more effectively. That's the same with calling. You can have somebody that's a good caller, but you can have somebody that's an exceptional caller and and they they have, you know, it's not just yelping. They can jake yelp and they can do, you know, other sounds that the, the average hunter may not be able to do and sometimes that works to their advantage. So I'd, I'd classify them both as a, a form of woodsmanship, but it does have, you know, each has its perks in the in, in the right place and right time. Yeah, and that really brings up, when you're talking about, like, the calling aspect and, and, again, woodsmanship, I feel like, especially anyone that's a, 
a good caller, whether they're on the competition level or just, you know, a local guy that just, you know, is extremely successful calling and really has mastered, um, you know, different vocalizations. It seems like, again, to get to that point, not only are you understanding like when and where to use that call, but or that vocalization, but also the different setups and how to go about presenting yourself in the woods to give yourself the most, you know, odds of success while doing so. Um, but it is interesting when you start seeing from like a caller standpoint and, you know, these, you know, say the Grand National Call uh, competitions and everything else is you hear this all the time from guys uh, and just what, you know, viewers, followers, the whole nine yards of, well, you know, that's not what a, a true wild turkey sounds like. Or, you know, uh, a wild turkey, like a wild hen doesn't sound nearly as good as some of these guys on the competition level. What is your thought on that? Because you hear that come up all the time. It comes up every single year, every single spring, especially, you know, around NWTF convention when all these people are watching these, uh, you know, competitions have plays or take place. What is your take on that? And again, how that kind of falls into like the, the category of woodsmanship when it comes to being realistic with what you're doing uh, versus where the guys are like, you know, I've never heard a hen call that well while in the field. Yeah, I mean, that's the phrase that I hear most is, don't worry about being a great caller. I've heard hens that sound worse than hunters before. You know, I've heard hens that sound worse. And they'll always give an example. I was sitting there working a bird, and here comes this boss hen, you know, um, and it was, or I thought it was a hunter coming my way. It was the nasty, worst thing I ever heard, and out steps this, you know, hen, you know. And I'm like, well, that's, that's, to me, that means they just don't have an ear for turkey because I've never heard a turkey that sounds bad. They sound like turkeys, you know, <laughs> um, if you've got an ear for a turkey and, you know, and, and a lot of that comes, I think, from just my experience being around turkeys. I used to raise turkeys when I was younger, listening to turkey audio all the time, spending a lot of time in the woods, hearing them, the actual real thing, watching YouTube videos of actual turkeys. I've picked up. I think a good ear for them. And, and it's hard for you to fool me out there. If a person's calling or a real Turkey calling, you give me enough to put my ear on. I can with a uh, pretty certainty tell you which one it is. Um, I think that's just a, a way of some people to just uh, shrugging it off. They, they actually know the truth that, you know, it being a good caller will help, but it's, I think some people out there know that they don't want to devote the time or they'll never, maybe be that good and so they just kind of shrug it off as it's not that important and uh so i think that's uh that's kind of my answer on that <laughs> it it definitely i well let me add to that people on the competition stage these days they sound phenomenal but none of them have matched a real turkey yet there are some that are getting really really close and in certain calls like you may see the routine that this call would definitely fool me but maybe this call over here, like, cause they may yelp and it fool me, but the key key may not, you know, but they're getting really close to perfecting that sound. Do you feel like it's the pitch? Do you feel like it's the tone? What do you think it is or, or the cadence of the calls that kind of, you know, change what a wild turkey sounds like in your ears versus, you know, someone that's actually just calling, uh, using whether it's a diaphragm call, pot call or anything else. I mean, what do you think it is that's the difference between the two? It's it's the sound. I mean, the cadence is easily uh, easy to replicate. Uh, different things like that are easier for a person to replicate. But the actual sound, the complete, like if they're yelping, we'll just use that example. The complete front to back of a yelp. There's so many other sounds in there instead of just a yep yep yep. There's other 
sounds that you're hearing going on transitioning between that yelp and uh from the front to the back and i mean it's hard to put into words but when you once you know that sound it's just like a familiar vo- voice of a friend if you had somebody trying to to uh what do you call the people that do the uh voices of other people um you know what i'm talking about like comedians and stuff mm-hmm. i mean if even them doing it sounds pretty close but if you know that person, you grew up that person, you would be able to tell the person that's faking the voice and the, and the real person. It's just little nuances about it that separate the two. Now, I guess it brings up a point, though, from, say, a newer turkey hunter or just someone that's trying to get more proficient when it comes to calling. Is it one of those things that, like, your your best teacher is going to be the wild turkey itself? And it really kind of pay attention, whether it's through watching videos of actual hens calling um, or just spending more time in the woods of like kind of figuring out what the cadence, what the tone and everything is like and having that ear for it. Or is it just one of those things that you just get proficient at what you're producing sound wise and you're slowly molding that with experience and woodsmanship of what works, what doesn't work in the area of the country that you're hunting in? I'd, I'd say the, the the best thing to do the or the progression I would uh suggest to someone is watch some youtube uh tutorials on how to actually run a call like if they're running a pot call for instance how to properly hold it and all that stuff get all that down first but don't watch and listen to that caller to learn how to make actual turkey sounds you know i mean you can learn from the technique and everything but you know just flood yourself with the experience of real turkey audio it's going to take many years to hear that in the wild but do it as much as you can, but use YouTube. I mean, and other online videos and audio to listen to real turkeys. You can get some audio CDs and, or if that's still available, <laughs> um, I still have one stuck in my CD player in my truck. Um, and I don't even know, I don't, I don't know if new cars come with CD players on my truck. So, old. <laughs> but just basically, you know, listen to a lot of turkey audio the real thing and then you'll start picking that stuff up and as a competition caller i think that's what helped me because it forces you to listen to the stuff you want to get better as a competition caller the average person is going to listen to it as they get pumped up for you know the upcoming season and then after turkey season they're they're done listening to it you've got to be dedicated and devote devote some time to it on that same vein of of turkey calling another thing that you'll hear from time to time is calling in one spot for too long is bad. You know, a real hen won't stand in one spot and and call and yelp a whole bunch for a really long time. What's your take on that? It, it absolutely does happen. I've I had it happen this year a couple of times where a hen just held her ground and she yelped and yelped and yelped and yelped and cut and she never budged. So, and I'm sure gobblers are used to you know experiencing the same thing. So. Um, yeah, that's one one thing I've seen hunters say before. So don't sit there in one spot all day and call. I don't like to sit in one spot all day long, so that doesn't uh, cause a problem for me as far as sitting, you know, in one spot. I usually get up and move to another location. But if you're, say, you're hunting in a ground blind and you're sitting in one spot, it's not uncommon to have a hen in one spot. Plus, you're going to have gobblers that weren't within earshot earlier and then they're going to get in the earshot and so they they didn't hear you sitting there calling the whole time anyway but it's not uncommon for him to sit in one location and call for an extended period of time 
Yeah, I've, that's something that I've experienced too over the years. And I mean, usually it happens multiple times a year where I'll be around some hen and she just like won't shut her mouth and she just yelps and yelps and yelps and yelps and walks around and hangs around in one little area the whole time. And that's something that I used to hear all the time as well. And, you know, I would see actual turkeys out in the wild doing that kind of thing. I'm like, well, I mean, if she's doing it, I should be able to do it. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, th- I think what causes that, the few instances where I was able to lay eyes on the hen, she was in the area of feeding. She was scratching in the woods, and she was yelping back or yelping around to to let other turkeys know, you know, here I am over here, or, or however she was communicating or whatever she was communicating. But then she would, you know, work over here. I'm thinking of one hen in particular I watched for a while. She'd scratch. She'd go off this way. Then she'd make a circle, and she just was thoroughly – cover in that area maybe she was finding a lot of good things to eat but she spent an hour or more in that one area and she would yelp and and cut especially when i would call to her she'd you know get a a little vocal there a little more vocal that that's one actual tactic that's really been good to me over the years and it was like years ago when we first started doing turkey content we interviewed billy yargis and he was like hey sometimes if there's nothing happening I'll get on top of a ridge in like a good strategic location and I'll sit up there and I'll just walk around and call for a couple minutes and then go sit down for a while. And then if nothing shows up, I'll get up and do it again. And he just kind of hangs out in a spot. And on mornings where I don't really have a turkey that I'm going after, or I don't know where one is and I'm just kind of trying to make something happen, I'll do that. And I might be in the same spot for like three hours and I killed a turkey on hour three, you know, where there's like gobblers out there just kind of floating around doing their thing. And then eventually one kind of drifts into your bubble and he hears you doing that and then he'll come up to you. Um, do you ever do anything like that? Have, have you ever utilized that kind of tactic or are you just kind of run and gun all the way and you're moving until you find that hot gobbler? Yeah, I do. I do do that sometimes, but it's not because, okay, this is a proven tactic for me. It does work. Um, the running and gunning, staying mobile seems to work more often. The times that I do that, and it's really nice in hill country, just like uh, Billy Argus described, if I can find me a nice little ridge point and do that, I normally do it when it's, I've been busting my tail all morning. You know, I got up at two o'clock in the morning and hunted, you know, daybreak, and then I'm, it's getting up later in the day, you know, noon, one o'clock, and I am dead tired. And so my strategy on those days is to find a nice spot to set up, good cover where if I'm not paying attention, I don't get busted. If one sneaks in, I, I'm able to move, you know, get the gun on them. But I'll make some loud cuts, a series of exciting yelps and calls, and then I just put the calls down and I just sit there. And a lot of times I doze off for a few minutes and a gobble will wake me up or I'll wake up and look around and maybe make a call when gobble's not far away. He's been there looking for me. But the, I typically do that, you know, like when, when I'm ready for a break. But, it's a, you know, it can be a very effective uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. What is your take on the the saying that in nature uh, gobblers always go to the hens, or uh, or hens always go to the gobblers? Yeah, that's that's. There's no way to prove this one. <laughs> for I mean, for me to prove it otherwise. But who came up with that? And you know, who's who's saying that that's the way it works in nature? Because we all go out in the spring and we watch gobblers come to us. You know, I think you got to separate that saying the dominant gobbler yes the hens may go to him but all the other gobblers they're going to the hens or they're or the hens are going to each other you know they're all going to each other 
Um, most of the subordinate gobblers, they don't have hens. You know, they're roaming around, so they are the ones going to the hens. So the saying is not true in 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 general. Yes, the the hens will fly down. That dominant gobbler, he pitches down, he struts, and the hens pitch down. And they all hang out. But all these other birds, the gobblers that don't have hens, in nature they go to the hens. So I don't I don't use that saying. I, I think it's it doesn't really apply uh, as a general term or a general saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, I think it's way more kind of like you're saying. It, it varies turkey to turkey because I'm like I've had turkeys that like absolutely just won't come to me, but then. There was this one bird last year that he he started gobbling before daylight, and he gobbled like at least once a minute for like half an hour. I mean, he was gobbling in the pitch black dark, and there was no hens around, like nothing. He was like he was only like 150 yards from me, and there was no hens around. There was no other turkeys really gobbling close to him. He was like kind of all alone. I'm like, well, man, maybe he's pretty desperate. Like I don't know, he's he's gobbling his butt off. And then when it got about fly down time, I literally just. I think I might have yelped like three times, and he didn't gobble at it, and I just put my stuff down. I'm like, well, he's been gobbling at everything else. If he didn't gobble at that, that means he's probably coming, and then I shot him like two minutes later. That's and that's usually when you see it, when people would say, hey, I got this bird, and he's gobbling, he, but he, he came in, but he's hung up at 70 or 80 yards. And then, and then someone would reply, well, in nature, the hens are supposed to go to the gobbler, so that's why they didn't come. No, in those instances, I believe it's you're usually dealing with a more experienced gobbler. It's been around for a season or two. Um, or like in the case of a bird I hunted uh, last spring, he had this one little ridge top and he would sit there and gobble. And he he was very wary. He He just didn't want to close that distance. And I think that's what happens when you get to those birds. It's not that they expect the hen to come to them it's just they know better or or they've had some um near-death experiences (laughs) and so they're playing a little little playing a little safe shane i want to bring up uh a i guess you could call it almost a myth or just maybe what people is commonly believed is you've got a gobbler on the limb gobbling strong before fly down and after fly down he's completely quiet and a lot of people would say, well, he's hinned up. He's with hens. Do you think that's the case all the time, or do you think there there is times when he gets down and there maybe this is another outlying factor is the reason why he might not be gobbling on the ground, but maybe he's not necessarily hinned up or has hens with him right then and there? Yeah, that's a tough one because it requires you to be able to see them to, to get a, get a you know experience with what's going on each time. A lot of times, and, and I think this is partially true, a lot of times when a bird is vocal on the limb and then he flies down and he's not vocal anymore, he, he does have hens with him. He's gobbled up there on the limb because he's not with the hens. And then a couple of the hens pitch down. He sees them. He just flies to them, and he goes into a strut. And if you've ever seen a gobbler that is in locked-up full strut with his head tucked back into his feathers, a crow could land on a limb five feet above his head and, and start sounding off, and he wouldn't gobble to it. He is just so preoccupied with displaying that nothing will trigger a gobble, and he just goes silent. And then other times I think there's been birds that I've hunted that I was pretty sure didn't have hens with them. And for whatever reason, I guess I don't know if they just felt safer up on the limb gobbling, but when they hit the limb, and maybe it's just a subordinate that got his butt kicked, he didn't want to be around other birds and risk getting his butt kicked again by another gobbler, they just go quiet and they start pecking and feeding and and go about their day. They're just – 
they're not one of the main breeders and and they're not participating. Um, so, I mean, I can't give you a definite answer on that. I've seen it where they've gotten quiet because they have hens, and I've also seen gobblers just fly down and get quiet and just mosey on through the woods and like they were in the wintertime and not a spring gobbler. Another thing that this isn't really necessarily a myth, but this is a, a thought that's run through my head after talking to other individuals um, is how often you may be, especially if you're running gunning, maybe working past birds or working past gobblers who might just not be talking. Maybe they're not even with hens. They're just being silent and they don't answer. And you keep working through, you're like, oh, well, they didn't gobble today or they weren't on fire, but you could have been within a couple hundred yards of them as you were working through, you know, kind of running and gunning. And they just decided to either take their time coming in and maybe it's one of those things by the time you, you know, cover a few hundred yards back where you last called 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, you hear a gobble from right there, but he didn't gobble to you right when you were trying to, you know, strike him up. Is that something that happens to you often, or is that something you can maybe talk about? Because I personally have experienced that where you've been on one ridge point, you, you're kind of running gunning, you know, you do a, a call sequence, you don't hear anything for 10, 15 minutes, you move two, 300 yards away, and then all of a sudden you hear a gobble from literally right where you were just at 10, 15 minutes ago. Um, yeah. And he was probably there, he probably heard you, he just didn't respond with a gobble. Um, and it was one of those things that that running gun mindset for me shot me in the foot that day because that bird was at that point and then my next setup maybe wasn't as good as that previous setup as in you know where i could set up and you know kind of hide the hen what is your take on that again working birds that maybe they're not being very vocal but having the patience on those days to kind of hold tight and give yourself a chance if they are being quiet and they're in the area to hold up and see what happens yeah so first of all yes i've definitely had that happen on a number of occasions uh, anybody that's hunted for a few seasons and, and they're the running gun style are going to have that happen. Um, we talked about this, um, or not about this, but one of my tactics we discussed on a previous podcast where I, I slow things down to, and it's basically to try and avoid this, you know, you move through the woods a hundred yards. Or so you call or whatever, and then you just stand there and listen, or you sit down against a tree and you just sit there for a half hour. And you're basically becoming part of the woods, but you're also allowing for things like that to happen because there are gobblers that will hear you call. So imagine a situation you probably experienced. You went into the woods, you found a nice little spot that's been good to you in the past, or it just looks like a good turkey area. You sit down, make a few calls. 15 minutes later, you hear spitting and drumming. Here comes one in. He never gobbled to you, but if you were running the gun and had walked off, it would have been the same scenario. He would have come in there, didn't see you around, then he gobbles. Now you're on a ridge over, and that's where you're hearing that gobble. He came in looking for you, but where are you at, Hen? So now he he, he gobbles for you. Um, and so in those instances, it really can't be helped. If you're depends on your strategy for that day. Like if I'm out trying to cover ground, it's bound to happen. I'm just trying to cover as much ground as possible. But then other days, I may just decide to slow it down, go here, call for a little bit, sit wait for a half hour, get up and then walk and cover another few hundred yards and then just sit down and cough a little bit. So there's two different strategies um, that are going to have that happen to you or prevent that from happening to you. Just it's a coin toss. <laughs> another thing when it talks about vocalizations or, or gobbling uh, from gobblers, one thing I hear pretty often and it comes up in different conversations with uh, different guys is about bronic pressure potentially affecting, you know, gobbling activity for a morning. I have, uh, I've talked to many individuals who fully believe, you know, if it hits 30 or higher with the bromic pressure, that's going to be a really good morning. If it's below that 30 uh, threshold, 
maybe not so much. Do you have anything to kind of say or discuss on that? Have you ever paid attention much to barometric pressure? I didn't understand you at first, but I, now I realize you're saying barometric pressure. Oh, I'm sorry. I, barometric. I was sitting here, too. I was waiting on it. I was like, yeah. someone's going to drop that in the reviews. Barome- yeah, barometric pressure. Yeah. yeah. Actually, you know what? I've said that before in the podcast, and someone is there, crazy. There's some, there's some things Jacob just doesn't pronounce, like yeah. thesaurus. Yeah, I was... I just kept listening, hoping you were going to repeat it. So I was like, oh, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Barometer? Um, no, I, I, to answer your question, <laughs> uh, I've never paid attention to it uh, as far as looking, having a gauge or something or checking my weather app to see what it is. Uh, I think the, uh, what is it, the foggy mornings, that's usually a lower barometric pressure. I don't have a whole lot of goblin on, the, on those real foggy mornings. Um, but then there have been mornings where it's foggy and, and they have been goblin. Uh, but it seems like in most cases um, they're not gobbling well until that sun breaks through, um, and then especially or even on an overcast day, a dreary day. As soon as that sun pops out, like I was, I remember hunting with my daughter a few years ago, and it was kind of cool and overcast, and the sun clouds started to clear out, and we hadn't haven't heard a gobble all morning. And I told my daughter, I said that sun's getting ready to break out. As soon as it does, we're going to start hearing gobbles. And sure enough. 20 or 30 minutes after the sun, the skies kind of cleared out. We heard our first gobble, and that was like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, so I think it does affect them uh, to what degree. I don't know. I just I go out there each day hoping to hear one gobble, and I haven't really kept up with it much. It's it's certainly not going to keep me out of the woods if the barometric pressure is real low and, the, you know, if it's proven that that affects goblin. Was that your question? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, and kind of going off that um, is rain and you know, you hear from guys talking about, and this is, I've seen this more so like in areas with agriculture or pasture, you know, uh, areas we have a lot of open space that when it's raining, birds are going to get out in the, in the most open areas possible. Um, have you seen that to be the case most times than not? Uh, like rain or high wind conditions, they're going to be in the most open area, whether maybe it's open hardwoods or pasture land um, or, you know, agriculture fields. Is that pretty common, would you say, or, or pretty accurate? Or is there times when maybe, you know, that hasn't been the case for you? You maybe have found birds in uh, maybe not as open, you know, habitat. I'd, I'd say it's uh, happened enough or I've noticed enough, and, and I hope it's not just a uh, – uh, like a visual bias or whatever it seems to me that that is the case i don't think it's uh like like a switch 100 percent. like all the birds are heading to openings what i have observed in the times i have been out there in the rain like out in the woods a lot of turkeys when that initial rain sets in they just hunker down you know they'll kind of tuck their head back in and just kind of waiting it out but if the the rain is prolonged and, and lasts an extended amount of time they usually go a shrug off and then start, you know, pecking through the woods or whatever. And I guess they realize, okay, this rain's not in any, any time soon. Um, but like you said, it, it, they do seem to be drawn to more open areas, like open, more open hardwoods uh, fields. I don't think when you get to the fields when they're really tall grass, like late summer and it's saturated water and their body's going to be walking through that. That's, that's the same on a, on a, a non rainy day where there's been dew the night before. I avoid areas like with tall vegetation. The turkeys seem to avoid those when there's a lot of dew cover on there. Not all the time, but it seems to be a trend. In that same vein, what about uh, the expression that you hear that when it's really windy, it kind of shuts them down, like they don't want to gobble when it's real windy? I don't know if I've ever heard that. Um, 
it just makes it hard to hear them. They may be gobbling, you just can't hear them. I had a bird in Nebraska. He was roosted in a tree literally 35 or 40 yards from me. I was level with him. I could see him in the tree. But it took me a while to find him because he kept gobbling, and he sounded he sounded close, but he sounded so far away at the same time, you know? And I, I was having a hard time hearing him. Had I been another, another 100 yards from him, it was so windy I would have never heard him. But um, he was in that tree, just gobbling his head off, and it was it was so hard to hear him, with, even with him being that close. I think the wind is just uh, hurting our ability to hear him at a distance, and that may be where that came from. I, I don't think I've ever heard it though. Yeah, I've I've definitely heard that one from time to time. on On those real windy days, are you just basically kind of hunting the same areas that you would normally hunt? It's just more difficult to hear them. I, I try to get on leeward hills, even with the wind kicking really strong, you know, uh, with the leaf cover, it sometimes makes it a little harder. But if you can get on those leeward side of those hills or down in deep ravines, if you're in hill country, just to get out of where the, just get to a point where the wind is not blowing right across the, the, the edge of your ear and making that, that noise, you know, just, you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so if you can just get it in out of the, the direct wind where your ears can hear stuff, you can hear some distant gobbles uh it's not desirable to hunt in the wind for me and um uh, i'd prefer it be a uh, calmer obviously i think most people would but uh that's kind of my strategy there if i'm hunting flat land um about the only recourse you, uh that you can take is um to get on the leeward side of a woodlot or something i'm trying to block the wind that way but it's not a whole lot you can do Shane, I'm interested in getting your take on uh, different subspecies of turkeys and how they act a little bit differently um, based off, I guess, weather conditions. If there's any kind of um, if there's any kind of uh, correlation, I, I would say, like, you know, have you seen easterns, depending on, like, what states you've been in, whether you're in the south or in the Midwest, um, if they act any differently based off, uh, you know, different weather conditions compared to what you've seen, like, Rios or, or uh, Merriam's? And especially wind conditions, because I was thinking like, you know, most areas you were going to find Rios, um, you know, like you're going to be dealing with a lot of wind. And of course, those turkeys are probably extremely used to it. Uh, but also the habitat's probably a lot more open in those areas versus where you may find some Easterns, especially outside like big agriculture areas. Um, do you see kind of any, and this may sound weird, like a personality change between those different subspecies on how they act in those different conditions uh, based off, you know, like say like the higher winds or anything like that? I, I don't think it really affects them in, in in their their activity. I think the only thing it affects is where they go, where they spend their day. The Western birds, as I like to call them, Miriams and Rios, they they seem to have gotten used to the wind. It depends on how much wind it is. It's always somewhat breezy out there when there's no trees. Uh, they seem to hang out in the creek bottoms most of the time anyway. And they'll go up on those prairies, those hilltops. Now, when you get to winds like 40 miles per hour and 50, um, especially for the strutters, they're trying to strut in this stuff. It's, it seems to be uncomfortable, uncomfortable for them. They seem to, to kind of use the terrain to block the wind and hang into those lower areas. Easterns are kind of the same way from what I've seen in the windy days. Uh, they get out of those trees in the morning. They seek uh, shelter areas where it's out of the wind a little bit. But they're not afraid of the wind either. I mean, they'll come up in areas where they're still getting hit by the wind. It depends on how much wind. I think that's what is the determining factor. The really high, severe winds will uh, affect them the most, obviously. 
Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at... Uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the true lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50 yard pattern on my gun with the true lock choke is unbelievable. Like everybody's jaws were dropping. Like when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K-chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with true lock. All right. Now Shane, this kind of goes into another question um, that I've been wanting to ask you because you're originally from South Carolina, correctly, Or is that correct? Yes, sir. How, yep. long, how long did you live down there in South Carolina? Uh, till I was uh, low thirties. So this, this is a, this is something I hear from a lot of Southerners. Okay especially that, that travel is if you can kill birds in the South, you can kill birds anywhere. What is your thought on that? As in, if you're a proficient turkey hunter in the Southeast, public land, private land, whole nine yards, whatever, and you can kill birds every year down here that you could travel anywhere and be successful doing so. I, I would add a little, or edit that statement a little bit. If you can consistently kill birds in the South, you can kill birds anywhere. I mean, it's, it's one thing. And I guess, I don't want to tout public land over private land, but somebody that's hunting private land that's full of turkeys that may not have any trouble killing the gobbler there, um, they could come up here and hunt public land and may struggle. You know what I'm saying? But somebody down there, you know, one of your guys from Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia, whatever, that's just a turkey killer and goes on public land, he can, you know, fill his tag. He's usually fairly consistent. He's not going to have any trouble anywhere else, you know. The same can't be said, uh, and this is no hit on the people up in the Midwest or you know Western states. They just they're not as die hard about it as Southern hunters. Um, they may struggle. They may kill birds on public land up here consistently, but if they were to go drop them off in Mississippi somewhere or Georgia, uh, they may spend ten days there and not even get a sniff at a, tur- a turkey. You know, um, so I think there is some truth to that, and that's ju- it. Just comes from. Um, you got to be a little, a little better than the average guy 
because you have so much other hunter competition down there where you don't have that hunter competition up here. And that's what I was going to ask is why do you think that's the case? If, if that's something you believe, uh, what you're talking about, like the competition aspect and also maybe like the culture you think might be a big factor as well. Like the culture of everybody in the South is oh, so yeah. strong. Oh yeah. I mean, up here, um, I was just talking to a fellow the other day about this, this same subject up here. They, they don't take turkey hunting as, uh, as diehard. They're not as diehard about it as we are in the South. They feel their tag. Yeah, even if they could get multiple tags, like in Wisconsin, they're, most of them are content filling their one tag, and, and they're like, filled my turkey tag, now it's time to get the fishing rods out, you know? I'm like, wait, there's a whole another month and a half of season left. What are you talking about? Go pick up a surplus tag or take somebody else. But that's their thing up here. I'd say the majority of people up here live for ice fishing and then open water fishing, they call it, and deer hunting. And then down south, it's – those guys are diehard turkey hunters and everything else just kind of fills the season in deer hunting and fishing and everything else. Interesting. Yeah. Again, I've seen that as well. And it, it always seems like when you're talking about, and this might not be an accurate, um, uh, statement per se, but a lot of the most, uh, you could say popular turkey hunting, um, brands or, uh, people in outdoor media, a lot of those people do come from the South for whatever reason, uh, which maybe it's because of the audience. Like, again, there's just like that audience down in the Southeast that are just die hard for it, the culture, but also just, I don't know, something about, you know, these guys live in the South. And Shane, I still call you a Southerner, even though you live in Minnesota, but you lived in South Carolina for so long, dude. You're all transplant. Uh, welcome to be on the Southern Outdoorsman anytime, Shane. But, uh, yeah. but um, I'm just visiting Minnesota. I just stayed here. <laughs> I stayed here a little longer than, than I originally thought. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. But it's uh, it, that is super interesting because again, you just I hear that all the time. You got like you go to NWTF convention and you hear that from a lot of people. Um, when I say a lot of people, a lot of Southerners that man, you know, like you said, Shane, if you're consistent in the Southeast and specifically if you're consistent killing them on public land, you know, you can kind of take that skill set and apply it everywhere. You know, I know Dave Owens talks a lot about that as well. Um, and again, like you said, something about the culture, and also something about like in the Southeast having it seems a decent amount more tagged compared to other states outside of like say maybe wisconsin because i know you've killed the crap out of birds in wisconsin uh with however that tag system works up there which is pretty interesting uh with the surplus tags but um it that is a, a really interesting dynamic that again i've always have found fascinating and, and again it's kind of good to get your perspective because you've lived in both places you've lived you know in the southeast you know most of your life and then moved to minnesota um uh, and kind of be able to see both cultures from like the you know the upper midwest the midwest versus the southeast and kind of how they differ but also maybe if there's any similarities in between the two of them yeah i mean and i, w- I would say this also if i was down south hunting and you asked and suppose you had one tag right and you wanted to hunt with me and i said well I have an opening at the end of the season. Just hang on to your tag and don't go hunting until then. Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to wait the entire season just so you can go? And not with me, hunt with a buddy, uh, perhaps. Um, I have guys up here and, you know, they'll say, hey, uh, if you want to hunt, you know, late May with me in Minnesota, just don't fill your tag yet, you know. And then I have other ones. I'll say, just hunt until, you know, we have a chance to hunt together. If you filled your tag, you know, so be it. If you haven't yet, we'll do it. But those guys will say, surely, you know, I'll, I'll wait. There is no way I could sit out not going turkey hunting the whole te- season. I don't care who was waiting on me to go hunting with them. And I'm like, uh, yeah, you better hope I don't fill my tag. <laughs> That's all I'll tell you. Shane, also, 
another thing I want to bring up is, uh, and this is not like a turkey hunting myth or anything, because we're kind of doing some Q&A with you, but it's self-filmed turkey hunting in like the 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 skills that it takes to not only be able to be successful killing turkeys and killing them on public land, but also being able to self-film this process, like the experience that you have doing so. What are what has been some things that you've learned, like whether it's setup, equipment, holding yards, has allowed you to be successful not only as a turkey hunter, but also as someone that self-films majority of the time and doesn't have a camera guy running the camera for him like what have you learned uh whether it's the patience level whether it's you know being slow and smooth like what have you learned in order to be successful doing both uh and doing both very pro- prolifically or pro- oh, god i can't talk <laughs> proficiently <laughs> um yeah i knew what you mean what's your take on that <laughs> um it's definitely been a learning curve and and I have made equipment changes throughout the years to help me capture those hunts, like adding a 360 camera, because it is very difficult to capture everything, and and then and also you know, feel that tag or shoot that gobbler, and then get it on video. Um, the one thing I quickly uh, decided to do early on was, you know, I was carrying my shotgun in my hands, and I had my camera like a shoulder strap for it and carried it over my shoulder. And my main objective then was the kill came first, video came second. But at some point early on, I was like, you know what? It, it doesn't make for good video if I'm just being selfish to myself and trying to kill birds and not showing the, the viewers the entire experience. So I got to the point, I said, the camera's in my hands all the time. The shotgun's over my shoulder. If I come up on a gobbler, you know, one of those situations, I am more interested in trying to get footage of me you know, of that gobbler or me approaching it. And if it works out, I'm able to kill the gobbler, you know, fill my tag. So be it. So you'll see it in, in some of my videos where I take huge risk. The one in Michigan where there was an action camera over my shoulder and, and I could have killed it and it would have been on camera, but I wanted to get my main camera on. So I slowly reached up there. He surprised me, walked in the woods while I'm sitting there talking to the camera. And I reached up there and slowly turned the camera towards him and he got nervous, but he didn't get nervous enough to, take off running i ended up filling tag and getting the video um the other um let's see what other instance was uh, oh there's one coming up a video that's going to post next sunday of a gobbler that i roosted and i misjudged where he was roosted and when it got daybreak he was sitting right up over my shoulder above my head and he could see me and i took the i i just i could have sat there perfectly still and hope for the best but I was like, you know what? I'm going to get footage of him. At least in the video, instead of me saying, yeah, he's roosted right above my head, he flew away. I want a video of that bird roosted above my head and flying away. So I took the risk and turned my camera and got video of him. I ended up killing that gobbler later. But um, And you'll see that in the video. If, I don't know when this podcast is going to go live, so that video may or may not be out yet. If not, if it is, it'll be on my channel. Um, but, yeah, that that's... To answer your question, yeah, I got to the point where you got to make the video priority if you want good quality content. Um, you got to get good audio. I think most videos that personally that I enjoy watching, if they don't have good audio, I'm not going to watch it. It can be, you know, low res video. And if the audio is good, I will watch it. The audio to me is more important. I need to hear what you're saying. And, and see, that's the thing. I like watching videos where people are going through. I guess it's relatable to me, kind of my style. 
I'm explaining what I'm doing, how I'm getting from point A to B. I want to watch people do that. And I want to be able to hear you explain it. If I can't understand you, then I'm, I'm just watching a silent movie. And so, um, uh, we, I mean, we could go very in detail about this, but that's kind of the uh, summary of it. Yeah. Well, it's something that I think people watch your videos and watch the hunting public videos and Catman's videos. And they're like, man, I kind of want to take a camera with me. And then they do it a couple times. They're like, oh, this is a terrible decision because you kind of go through the mindset like beforehand, you're just worried about killing the turkey. Now you're worried about like killing the turkey while carrying a camera with you and trying to document everything, whether it's for you and just your family, just to watch and your buddies, just to watch the cool footage. Uh, if you get any, or maybe you're trying to do a YouTube channel or whatever it is. Um, and a lot of people quickly realize how difficult it is, especially when it comes to like hiding the camera, getting everything kind of set up, you know, dealing with not only you trying to shoot the, the bird, but also you're trying to catch it on camera, the whole nine yards. It's extremely complicating uh, and really can make it, for some people, not fun while others kind of like the struggle factor of kind of, you know, becoming that much yeah. better of a woodsman. Because it, my, my opinion is if you're able to be successful specifically while self-filming and you're killing turkeys, especially on public land or even private land, it doesn't matter, without the use of a blind, that's a huge I mean, that's a huge feat. And then also that really kind of, to me, showcases some woodsmanship because you're able to get within that bubble, have that turkey get within your bubble, your shooting range, uh, but also be able to execute everything while on camera is, I mean, it's about as hard as it gets. Uh, other than maybe trying to, you know, take a little kid with you that, you know, likes to score him, or me that likes to score him too while they're sitting against the tree. <laughs> um, that makes it even that much more difficult. So um, maybe not to go and ton more detail. we might get some other stuff on, on the filming aspect but i am curious the whole idea of camouflage you know you're already filming you know you got a tripod with you the whole nine yards you got camera equipment one thing about you that's kind of interesting is you're not a pro face mask kind of guy you like the whole face paint and if anybody watches your your videos they kind of see that what is your thought between you know a net gator or a face mask versus face paint and kind of the pros and maybe even cons of both, if there are some, and just your overall thoughts on it. Well, I started using face paint. I, I don't like anything on my face. I'd prefer not even have face paint because it just it just bugs me. Uh, a face mask tickles me. I'm a, I noticed that I was constantly adjusting it. I could never get it comfy. You know, the eye holes right up. The biggest thing, though, is you lose your peripheral vision. You know, like if I'm moving through the woods – you don't want to move your head to look down to see where your next step is going to be. You want to be able to see it out of your peripheral. You want to be able to scan the up ahead a few feet to know what's ahead so you can avoid stepping on limbs and snapping them. You don't want to be moving, making a lot of movement with your head to see things. A face mask causes that. It causes because it restricts your peripheral vision. And I see a lot of guys doing that when they're not only just moving through the woods towards a bird, but when they're just traveling, you know, logging roads, trying to strike a gobbler, they got their face mask up all the time. And I'm like, come on, man, take your face, face mask off. The turkeys are going to see you. You're not, you're not making your body in, invisible just because you have a face mask on people. People get hung up too much on. I think camouflage is a great tool. Don't get me wrong. I think, I think we need it. And a lot of people just uh, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? kind of don't take it as seriously. Like, oh, I can go out there and kill gobblers in blue jeans or the old timers did it, you know, back in the day, just blue jeans. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have the hunting pressure that we have these days. The nature proves that concealment helps. But at the same time, don't go overboard. You know, I've seen guys hunting out of blinds on videos 
and they're so scared the turkey's going to see them. They poke a little hole and you know unzip a little hole and just peek out of the guy. They're so scared the gobbler's going to see them. But like when you're wearing a face mask, moving around towards a bird, get that thing off. Use your peripheral vision, and that's kind of why I went to face paint. I just hated the whole idea of it irritating, itching my face, and 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 getting in the way of my peripheral vision when I was traveling. I think it just helped me, you know, be a little more stealthy through the woods. And you know, then I don't have to worry about getting my face mask. If you watch like some of the hunts where I'm hunting with guys, you know, like uh, the one with Tyler recently. It's like, oh, I think that bird's getting closer. I better get my face mask. And I didn't have to move. I'm already ready. There is the downside to face paint. You got to get that stuff off of you. And if you go, like I do, go into town in the convenience store, I haven't got used to it. I don't care. I just walk in the store a little like an idiot and grab my my tea and my snacks and out the door I go. I get some strange looks, but, you know, I'm not there to impress them. I'm out there to kill turkeys. Now, also, if I if I remember correctly, you've had success also even not even wearing face paint in certain hunts. Um, I mean, what is yep. so? This is something that's kind of strange because when I, my, and people have heard this on past turkey episodes. You know, I I'm a very I would say like a late onset turkey hunter. Uh, still don't have a tremendous success like at all. Uh, that's why we're trying to fix that this year, Andrew. Andrew <laughs> said it last year it didn't work, so we're gonna try it again this year. Um, but growing up, the few times I went turkey hunting with my one of my uncles growing up, and it was maybe like twice, and we never never had success. Saw some birds, never had success. Was head to toe completely covered, no skin showing, period, gloves, face mask, nothing, nothing showing skin other than like the white of your eyes. And then I see guys like yourself where you've had success even sometimes without even wearing face paint or a face mask. What is your thought on that? Because also, I'll say this, Shane, I've seen you met you in person many times. You're not an overly tan guy either, okay? So yeah, that's, a, that's Minnesota coming out in me. <laughs> so what, what is your thought on that? Because when I see that, I'm like, that is crazy. How does that turkey not see you know the white of your face and everything coming in? What is your take on that? Again, not even using face paint on, on some of the hunts and still having success. Yeah, it's crazy the number of comments I get on my videos when when a bird comes in and busts me, and the first thing they'll say on those instances where I don't have a face a face paint on or I don't have gloves on because I'm trying to use my fingers to to operate cameras and things. I need that that you know that uh, fidelity or that you know touch and feel to be able to hit buttons. And as soon as a bird comes in, gets a little squirrely and leaves, or a bird comes in and gets squirrely and leaves. Uh, you got to cover those snow white hands, man. You got to cover those hands. Well, that ain't what they saw. I mean, no, everyone seems to ignore that camera and all the other stuff that I've got. Did they not see that? When I'm out there in the woods and you, and I, and like I was talking to Tyler about that, we had a discussion about it. I said, man, look, look at my hand. I laid my hand down. I said, look at all the leaves around. There's leaves that are lighter than my hand. You know, if you were to go out in front of me 30 or 40 yards and look back at me, if I'm, let me move the tripod and everything away. Let me get a stick in my hand and point it at you like I'm aiming a gun. The shadow coming from the bill of my hat on my face, and I have no face paint on, and my hands, the way my hands are in position on that gun, those things don't stick out. It's If I was to move, yeah. But if you were just to look at me through the woods and I'm sitting perfectly still in my shooting position, you would not notice my face or hands. It would, you know, it's broke up, and there's and there's other limbs and trees. I mean, you've looked through the woods and seen sun reflecting off a smooth skin bark tree. And it is bright. It's like a mirror. So I, I don't, I think camouflage is, is crucial, but concealment um, is even more crucial. You don't necessarily need to be covered head to toe, but if you're in a position where 
your your hands or your face. I mean, I see people wearing face masks that are really dark, and and that's going to stand out just as much as a a really light skinned person like myself because I don't get much sun these days. Um, but you know what I'm saying? There's I've seen. I'm trying to think of you know, just a solid dark face mask. And to me that I'm like, man, that dark, that face mask is way too dark or your camo is way too dark. I hunted in Mississippi with a buddy one time, for example, and he had on camo that was dark in tone overall. And when I, when we went to meet up with him, he texted us where he was at. He was sitting beside a tree as we walked up. I could see him from a hundred yards away. It looked like a black bear sitting against that tree. And so, I mean, you got to, yeah, you got You just got to think smart about it, I guess. I mean, just because my skin is exposed doesn't mean it's standing out. I guess that's a really good point. Um, again, this if as long as I guess movement is the number one thing that they're kind of keying on. So of course, if you're moving with whether you're fully kitted up, gloves, face mask, if you're moving, they're going to catch movement, and that's going to you know you get the the turkey, the gobbler to you know become more aware of the situation and potentially even you know booger up and get out of there, but. It's always weird because again, I hunted like last year a little bit with no gloves on. I always feel like I feel naked, dude. If I don't have gloves on, yeah. and my bare hands, I'm like, that's a mental thing. It is. It's a mental. It's a mental hurdle, and you're looking at it. I'm like, oh man, they're gonna see my hands. And but it, in all, and well, I guess in the, in the biggest way to put it, if you took that much awareness on your setup and how you're setting up on that tree or whatever structure and covers around you. Maybe you can get away with a lot more than being out in the exposed open, sitting around the edge of a field, around the edge of a clear cut, around the edge of like maybe you know a big oak tree or just a small tree, and there's no cover around you. If if you put that much awareness into setting up in an area that doesn't have the uh, that doesn't have like the overall abundance cover around it, maybe you could you know get away with more. I don't know. It's a mental hurdle. It, it's affected me again multiple times where I was I have no confidence. I'm like crap I don't have my gloves and I'm trying to pull my sleeves of my of my shirt down across my knuckles just to kind of cover <laughs> up. But clearly again yeah. you, you show in a lot of your videos that if you have the right setup again on the tree or whatever you're setting up on, you can get away with a lot more than what people would think. Yeah, I I'm I'm more anal about my setup than my like covering my hands and my face. I, I really think that through like when I'm sitting down I'm or I'm getting to a spot, I'm getting ready to set up on a gobbler. I'm scanning around. A lot of times I'm not necessarily satisfied with where I sit because I'm picturing what can he see as he approaches? Do I feel like my whole setup is concealed enough? Do I have back cover? If I feel like I'm sticking out like a sore thumb, I'm going to move. Um, I'm more concerned about that than whether my face has camo on or my hands have gloves on. I mean, like I said before, camo, I think, is is uh, critical to some degree. And you can't disregard it at all, I mean, uh, altogether. But you got to pay attention to everything. You can be in your best camouflage, but if you're sitting against a little one-inch tree out in the middle of the open, they're going to they're gonna bust you. You know, they're going to notice you sitting there. Shane, one of the last... Uh little things we had on our list here that I kind of wanted to get at. This is something that I've heard a bunch of times over the years, and that is uh, that that gobblers will wear down their spurs. And I've even had guys talking about, well, in my area, we'd have a lot more birds with two-inch spurs if it wasn't so rocky, you know, and, and that like the birds are wearing down their spurs and you'd have a bunch of two-inch spur birds running around if, if there wasn't so many dang exposed rocks on the ground. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because I've always found that uh, interesting. Well, I, I, sometimes I think people 
are are meaning to say one thing, but they're saying something else. Now, uh, turkeys do not wear down their spurs like an eraser on a pencil. Uh, that doesn't happen because their spurs are how far off the ground? That that would be a clumsy turkey for their spurs to bump the ground. Like people say, like in Florida, they have sandy soil there, so they don't wear their spurs. Now that's why they're so sharp. No, I mean these gobblers up here that don't have sandy soil aren't walking with on their spurs. Now, will spurs break as, you know, gobblers try to get up a cliff or something? I've seen them in um, hill country terrain where there's a lot of rock outcroppings where they may nick a spur and break the tip. But that's obviously not worn. You can tell it's broke. Or when they're fighting each other, gobblers have broken spurs when fighting each other. And then as they grow back, they may look rounded. So what you're seeing on birds like that, there is either genetics or diet or fighting, but it's not based on their terrain for the most part. Every once in a while, they may nick a spur on the rocks or when they're fighting. But if you had birds, you know, just grabbed 10 birds from one location and 10 birds from another location, um, the spurs are likely going to be different. Even if you went to, let's say you went to an area where uh, out east where there's gobblers and there's hilly terrain, and but you grab a, pop- a segment of the turkey population near there that's uh, – the uh, that's not rocky, you know, they're going to probably be the same as far as spurs. It comes down to their diet and their, and their genetics and whatnot. Um, Osceola's just have long spurs. Miriam's look at those birds out West. They always have little half inch or three quarter inch nubs. No matter if you're hunting them in the black Hills where there's lots of rocks or you're hunting them in the prairie where there's nothing but grass. Um, what, what's the cause for those all to be, to be the same. So I, I think that's just a, either people using the wrong term and saying the, the spurs are breaking off because <laughs> they fight a lot or they have rocky terrain, but using the word they wear down is, um, or the terms wear down is, is not accurate. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jacob, you got anything? Yeah. So Shane, I know we're coming up on time here. Um, so there's at least one story of a hunt that I want you to kind of talk about just cause I think it's pretty memorable and, uh, it's just fascinating to go after. You hunted Nebraska a couple seasons ago with a recurve uh, and had success doing so. Can you talk a little bit about that hunt and what got you to, like, hey, go out there? And, you know, some guys are like, I'm going to hunt with a compound bow, and that's hard enough. But you're like, dude, I'm going to make it that much more difficult and hunt with a traditional bow. What was your mindset going into that? How did you want to prepare for it? And, and kind of give us a run through of kind of how the hunt progressed to be able to, you know, kill a, a gobbler with a recurve. I don't know what my mindset was because sometimes I regret ever doing it because now that I've been successful, I went last year and I missed three birds with my recurve. And I was like, I'm not going to do that again. And here I am planning a trip this year and I'm probably going to take my recurve again. It was very addicting, even though I struggle. You know, it's not often we get an opportunity at a turkey that close. And and I could easily take a compound and probably have you know better odds of success. But I went out there because you know, Nebraska has that early archery season and I want to be in the woods as much as I can. I think I'd come back from Mississippi that year and there was nothing going on up here. And so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go out there. Um, I could have taken my compound, but the thing about my recurve, the reason I started hunting with a recurve was the freedom of a more run and gun style. The way I shoot a recurve is kind of like what they call snap shooting. I don't need to draw back and anchor and aim like a compound. So in a heat of a moment where I just need to pull back and shoot, I can do that with a recurve. 
So that was kind of the draw. I'm weighing my pros and cons. Compound, yeah, farther, longer accuracy, more accurate. Recurve, I'm about to get much closer, but I can shoot you know, off the hip. I can shoot at a moment's notice you know, in this tight situation. So each one had their pros and cons. Um, I wasn't quite prepared for the cold. I guess I was prepared. I had clothes, extra clothes in my truck, <laughs> but I wasn't really anticipating how cold it was. Um, that morning I got up. I woke up in my truck because I sleep in my truck when I'm on the road, right in the front seat where I can have controls to the radio and the heat. And I looked out that front windshield and it was going to be a beautiful morning. It was the sun. The moon was out and you could see it was clear skies and it was just this, every bit of slight of uh, sun uh, indication. Sun was on the rise. I hopped out of my truck to get ready. And you talking about some shock from the cold. It was like, I don't know, 10 degrees plus or minus a couple degrees. It was very cold in the teens at least. And I made it to the back of my truck and lifted the, the, the hatch back there, the lift gate. And my hands were already numb. And I was like, no, not doing this. You know, in a recurve, you gotta, I had gloves with the fingers cut out, but it's not like with a gun, you can just be bolted up and still operate all the stuff. You gotta have a little fidelity with your fingers and whatnot. So I hopped back in the truck and a couple minutes in the truck with that heat on and I'm looking out the windshield again. I'm like, man, you can't miss a morning like this. It's, there's no wind. It's cold, but there's no wind. And that, that heat inside the vehicle, you forget about that cold out there. It's like, you're imagining what, how warm it's going to be when that sun pops up. It's like, I, I need to go. So I went back to the back of the truck again. I got the hatch open. I think I put on like my thick pants or whatever. And I'm like, man, my fingers are numb already. I was like, heck with this. And I hopped back in the, the front seat and I sat there for a couple minutes contemplating whether I was, was I a turkey hunter or not, you know? <laughs> and I was like, man, this is, this is going to be painful. And I was like, you, you don't want to miss this morning out there. So I finally got the guts to get out there. And, and I was like, I'm going to just have to fight through it, through, a, through some hand warmers in my, in my pants and or in my pockets and, and uh, heading on out there. And it, I guess once I got moving, I had all the clothes on and got hiking back in there, you warm up. So it wasn't quite as bad. I just had to stay moving. If I sat in one spot too long, my hands started getting a little cool. My feet got a little chilly, but that was about the the worst of it. Um, one of the downsides is having all the extra clothes. You can't hear as well. And you know how it is, but um, I managed to, to locate a bird, some birds on, on my side of the Creek where I was hunting I, the property lines along the Creek there. And I went to him. You want me to tell you this, the whole story? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how long you want me to stretch this out. Anyway, I, I started working to these two birds I was hearing, and, and I got closer, and I could see one from a distance. He was gobbling to McCall's, but they were kind of sitting in a sunny little hillside, a little prairie area there. And I think they were just out there strutting and enjoying the, the warmth of the sun. And I was kind of in the woods along the creek bottom there. And I, I just kept moving closer, and I'd call, touch base with them. And I think I finally got close enough where that one bird was like, yeah, I'm going to check this hen out. And I had a little 360 camera strapped to my back, try to document everything. It's kind of hard to self-film with a, uh, in your recurve. And, and so I'd already decided I wasn't carrying a, the tripod and the main camera. So I crawled. You know, finding this perfect setup was the hardest part because I've got to be ready for him when he comes and I got to have something to block his view um, so I can draw. And I'm, and I'm set up against this tree and I was like, he was, I figured he was going to come to my right side and I didn't want um, him to approach from my left to right. 
And across the little, it was like an old logging road through the woods. Across the way, there was a fallen tree. It was a big cottonwood or something. There were some small cedar trees growing. I said, man, I can just get in that little cubby hole. As he comes by, one of those little cedars will block his view, and I can just draw and then shoot when he exposes himself. And uh, it's funny, though, because all of a sudden I hear drumming, and, and there he is at the bottom of the hill. He's drumming, strutting, and he breaks strut and starts coming up the hill, and he's kind of moving quick. And I'm man, my heart is racing. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna finally get you know get a chance. And I literally had to yell hey to him to make him stop. As soon as he cleared that that cedar tree, I said hey, and he stopped and popped his head up, and 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 it all happened instantly. It's like hey, and I I released. I mean, and when that arrow hit him and he went to flopping, it wasn't like it zipped through him and he took off. It it went into his vitals and hit his spine, I guess, and it he just hit the ground. Know, fell down and started flapping on the ground and you're talking about somebody elated you couldn't wipe that smile off my face for hours um one of my most uh enjoyable hunts now that was a miriam or miriams um would i try that on an eastern that's gonna be a tough challenge those birds come in they're looking for the slightest bit of movement the miriams you can play with the terrain and and get away with a little bit more there i'm not i'm not you know, um What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> um, I know I know how difficult it is for the Eastern versus the Miriams. I know that that's going to be more of a challenge. But the thought is bouncing around in my head to give it a try here in Minnesota this this spring uh, to hunt my recurve. I've got to make that decision. Um, i got to think it through because in Minnesota, you can't just get a hunting license and hunt with whatever weapon you want. You either buy a gun license or a turkey permit or a bow hunting turkey permit. And so if I buy that bow hunting permit to hunt my recurve, and after a week or two of struggling, and, and I'm like, no, nah, I got to put the bow down and get the gun. I can't do that. So I've got to decide, do I really want to try killing Eastern with a bow? Right now I'm leaning towards it, but uh, we'll see how the season goes. I think that would be a pretty cool accomplishment there. Yeah, especially, and you're talking about, again, not using a blind, um, no decoys as well. That's another thing bringing up, no decoys, um, yeah, at least in the, with uh, Miriam. So, I mean, that's something that, actually, well, let me, did you have a decoy in that setup with him? No, no. When I when I hunt with a recurve, I'm strictly trying to be a Rambo. I'm just slipping through the woods, and I'm, and I'm trying to take a turkey out. You know, I'm trying to call him in, but at the same time, I want to, I want to do it uh, on their terms. Absolutely. No, it's, that's so cool. Um, again, props to you. You can have it. I, I, just, I struggle <laughs> enough to try to kill with the shotgun, let alone try, yeah. try to make it even more difficult don't, myself. Don't get me wrong. I still feel that turkey hunting is a shotgun sport. Uh, there's nothing like that finale or that finality of, of a boom and the hunt is over uh, and the release of all that tension and that adrenaline. Um, with a bow – um, I, I, I don't enjoy watching bow hunts because they shoot a turkey and it's just like the air goes through them and they run off. It's just, there's no finale to it. You know, with a gun, it's, it's over. You either missed them or hit them, you know? Um, but so that's why when I, if I bow hunt turkeys, I think that's the reason I keep going back to the recurve because that does add a little, uh, you know, it's a huge amount of, of a challenge to pull it off. So no line, no decoy, just running and gunning style. But that makes up for it when there's there's no boom at the end, I guess. <laughs> and that's a personal thing, you know. I mean, other people may feel the same way, but for me personally, that's that's the way it should be. That's the way turkey hunting is. It's a shotgun sport, unless you're chasing them with uh, 
traditional equipment, then I can I'm all all for that. Absolutely, yeah, man. The the recurve thing, I don't know. Maybe maybe one day, maybe one day. Uh, but Shane, we're kind of getting into turkey season here within the next I don't know a couple of weeks, depending on where you're at. By the time this drops. Uh, just to kind of close this out, do you have any advice for anybody who's going to be hitting the woods in the next couple of weeks, you know, kind of start off turkey season right um, across the southeast? Mm, any advice? Good luck. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, hopefully you've scouted enough. You've got backup plans. You don't, don't, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket on one piece of property or location if you're hunting public. That's what my, my, my brain always thinks about public because that's primarily where I hunt. So if I give you an answer, it's going to be a public land hunting related. Um, don't, you know, especially in the South, Southeast, there's going to be a lot of competition at those gates. So, um, make sure you have backup plans. And if someone's there, it's just a turkey at the end of the day. Don't get upset about it. Go somewhere else and, or hunt, hunt during the week when there no, there's less pressure. Absolutely. Well, Shane, uh, greatly appreciate you for joining us on this podcast. Uh, real quick, if anybody wants to watch your video content, uh, how can they follow along with you? Maybe even DM you if they have any specific questions. I know you're a very busy man, uh, but I know you answer questions uh, when you get a chance. How can people get a hold of you and kind of watch your videos you're putting out? Yeah, they can go to my website, ShaneSimpsonHunting.com or Shane Simpson Hunting at you- on YouTube. Just search up Shane Simpson Hunting. Um, if you're looking for any tips or advice or you need to message me or DM me, I would actually prefer you do that during the season. It sounds odd, but right now, preseason, I am so busy with other things, making calls, editing videos, getting things prepped for the season. During the season, I have a lot of downtime in the evening when I'm copying files and charging batteries and eating dinner. I'm just sitting in my truck. So that's the time that I'll have to look at messages and, and reply to them. Or even maybe I, sometimes I'll call people because I just enjoy talking more than I do typing. And then I can stuff my face while I talk to you. You just have to, you have to listen to me smack my jaws for a little bit. while I'm <laughs> But, yeah, that's, that's the two locations you can find my videos. Awesome. Well, Shane, appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Listeners, make sure you tune in for our next episode of Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. And, hey, good luck to everybody out this season. And uh, thanks again, Shane, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You guys have a good spring, hopefully. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who will wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. 
year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.